name, which is above every name. Uh, I wanted to make one other note, too, just, uh, just to be clear. If you find something here that you're unsure of, come and ask us. There might be a few things like, well, if it says this, then they must mean this. So um, if you want to clarify, feel free to come to us to clarify our doctrinal statement. At the beginning of the giving of the law, God spoke these words to Israel. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Of course, we recognize that as the third commandment. If you're visiting with us for the first time today or first time in a while, we're in the fourth week of an 11-week series on the Ten Commandments titled The Timeless Ten. And uh, we are studying one commandment each week. Today we're on the third. I would encourage you, if you haven't been with us, to consider going to our website. We have the first week introduction to why we're doing this and the purpose behind it all, including... Uh, The first two weeks, the first two commandments on our website that you can hear, uh, where you can review that information. And from our scripture reading earlier in Leviticus chapter 24, uh, you've probably already rightly concluded that God takes this pretty serious. This is pretty serious stuff. Um, It was not just a suggestion to Israel. In fact, none of these are suggestions but commands uh, first verbally spoken to Israel, as you learned a couple weeks ago, and then ratified, as Exodus uh, tells us, on tablets of stone written by the finger of God. You know, the the tablets weren't carved of wood. They, They weren't etched even on gold, as precious as that is, but rather engraved in stone with the finger of God. Obviously, uh, this is symbolic of the permanency of God's commands. Uh, they, they are everlasting. They are everlasting. Consider even, you know, after Moses shattered that first set of tablets as he came down from the mountain, uh, did simply the physical destruction of those tablets nullify the commands of God? No. No, of course not. Uh, Neither, by the way, does removing them from the town square or taking down a monument on which they're engraved. That that doesn't nullify the commands of God. In fact, in Exodus 34, when the Lord, uh, Yahweh, told Moses to cut two new tablets or cut out two new tablets and bring them up on the mountain to him, God said, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. And there's an interesting little tidbit here. You might like this. As Moses was on that mountain for 40 days uh, during that uh, occasion, you can read this in Exodus 34, verse 28, whose hand actually chiseled the words on those tablets over those 40 days? It was Moses' hand. Moses' hand. So God declared, I will write... Yet he used Moses' hand to write his everlasting words in stone. Yeah, that's just a great image displaying how God superintends. We we use the word superintends or guides the human writer to write his words in Holy Scripture. Who is the author? The author is God. God wrote it. He used human authors to do so. In an explanation 
of the Apostle Peter, this is in 2 Peter 2, uh, 1 verse 21, he says that no prophecy, and there in context it means no prophecy of Scripture, no prophecy of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So every word we have recorded in Scripture is physically written through the hand of a human author as they were superintended or overseen by the hand of God. It is without error. And through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, as we are indwelt, believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, uh, through that illumination, Scripture interprets and explains itself. So the giftedness of teaching or, or preaching isn't always coming up with something new to say some new idea to talk about, but instead it is guiding people to what Scripture says about itself, as Scripture explains itself, and then, of course, applying it in light of our modern circumstances. Uh, Today, (laughs) folks, this is kind of a hard one. The Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. You know, to take, to take a name in vain uh, means to state with an attitude of emptiness. means to express with an attitude of flippancy, lack of importance, without value. It was a very, very serious thing in Israel. Very serious. And we'll talk about that in a few moments. You know, God's name, it is set apart. It is, it is holy. And therefore, it demands to be revered and to be elevated on our lips, it's one reason we don't name our children God. No one else is God. Hebrews, uh, the Hebrew culture, Israel, dared not express the name of the Lord. That is capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in most of your translations. That's a translation of Yahweh. They didn't take that lightly. Uh, we, we will see just how serious that was as we observe Israel after the giving of the third commandment, which is also restated again, by the way, in Exodus 22, verse 28, where it says, You shall not curse God, nor curse a ruler of your people. You know, curse is a, is a different Hebrew term, which also implies to take something lightly, to give little weight to, but, but also it, it further means to... to hold with contempt, or to bring dishonor. To verbally invoke harm on somebody, a god or a ruler, through cursing by using God's name. Would this command have only applied to the king in Israel? King David or King Solomon? Or would it also apply to Jewish rulers of all types? Are Americans exempt from this? No. No, we're not. The principle is restated again in, in Romans 13, where it tells us that every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. You know, Romans ensures readers that Rulers are an extension of God's authority. It's called his ministers for good. His ministers for good. This is one of the reasons, by the way, 
that many nations call their, their preeminent political office the office of prime minister, right? Government is a minister or a servant of God for good. If you doubt that, just imagine if we had people running around without any authority to hold them in check, running around with masks and looting and flipping cars and things like that with no authority to hold them accountable. Think how awful that would be if we didn't have the blessing of God through government. The Apostle Peter said, Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And the king... Uh, at that time that Peter wrote that was not a cream puff. He was a tyrant. He was a tyrant. But God establishes kings and he removes kings, the prophet Daniel tells us, for his sovereign purposes, to accomplish what he decides to accomplish through a culture. He raises up kings, he takes, his, takes out kings. And uh, God warns us not to invoke a curse against them, against leaders, or, or in any way to, to invite God in any way to condemn them. You follow me? Is this principle different concerning other members of society? Well, apparently not, because in our earlier scripture reading we saw in Leviticus 24, uh, we were observing a half-Egyptian, half-Jew, who during a fight with another man invoked the name of Yahweh, and used it to curse in an attempt to verbally inflict harm upon his adversary. In that text, again Leviticus 24, we're introduced to a new word. For the first time, uh, appears actually the very first time in Scripture. It's nakab. It's what we translate blaspheme. To blaspheme. Uh, blaspheme has connotations of... Um, it means to bear with the intent to strike. To bear, to strike, or to pierce someone. Verse 11 said that the man blasphemed the name of God. That, that implies that he wielded the holy name of God like, like a weapon, and he cursed. He cursed the man. So we see blaspheme uh, used in combination with the term curse in Leviticus 24 which we already learned implies that God's name was deployed uh, flippantly, without, without consideration, taken lightly, bringing, bringing God dishonor, essentially. So it isn't, it's, it's really vitally important for us, modern-day Christians, um, to look at this incident and know that this is the very first time, the very first time that anyone in the Bible, anyone in Israel, had ever heard the name of God blasphemed. Very first time. First time it was used to, uh, to violate the third commandment. No one in Israel had ever heard this before. This is the first. In, in fact, you probably caught on as we read, no one even knew how to respond to what had just happened. And, and neither at the giving of the third commandment or, or the rephrasing of it in Exodus 22 did God ever assign a penalty for it. They didn't know what the penalty was. In, in fact, Israel had to take the man into custody to give Moses an opportunity to inquire with the Lord what the penalty for this offense is. God's response we saw in Leviticus 24, verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who is cursed outside the camp, 
And let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. And let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, capital G-O-D, that is Elohim in Hebrew, then he will surely bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord, again, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him. Furthermore, he says, the alien, that is a stranger or a sojourner that's passing through the land, uh, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. How serious is God about this? About defending his holy name, uh, his reputation, his integrity for being elevated above every other name. Uh, the, the event, it struck fear into the hearts of Israel. Struck complete fear into the whole company of people. Let me ask you a question. Did the half-Egyptian, half-Jew, half-Egyptian, did he need to first understand the penalty for what he did, the penalty for his sin, to justly endure such penalty? Did he need to know that the penalty was death? Obviously he didn't. Yet was he accountable to God and was the penalty enforced on him? It surely was. It surely was. Ignorance or lack of knowledge of the penalty, that, that, that's not a justifiable defense. And this passage has significant implications that reach all the way to us today. We're going to find out. Um, first off, the violation of the law applies to the Jew. It applies to the half-Jew. And it applies to the non-Jew. That's who the law applies to. It doesn't matter whether you are an unbeliever in Denver or in Timbuktu. It does not matter. Your sin offends the same God. One holy and righteous God. There is only one God. Sin offends one holy and righteous God. There's not different gods in different parts of the planet. Whether the breaking of the law includes dishonoring your parents, blasphemy, covetousness, idolatry... Uh, for most, a combination of all the above, we are all shut up and condemned under the law. All, all guilty. The law cannot impart life. It, it can't give life. It only imparts death and condemnation. The Word of God says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You know that, Romans 3.23. We've all fallen short. And the wages meaning that which we earn through our sin. One sin, repeated sins, whatever. What we earn from our sin, the wages of sin, is death. That's the consequence of sin. Death. Immediate death. As Scripture says in Galatians 3, verse 24, this is New Testament now, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have indeed been based on the law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified through faith. Or rather than the phrase shut up, uh, the English Standard Version 
uses the term imprisoned. Violation of the law shuts everyone up in prison. We are imprisoned as we break the law. And we are, we are awaiting our trial and our date of execution. That's where you stand under the law. We're all lawbreakers. Under the law alone, we stand waiting, imprisoned, for our date of execution. That's what we're waiting for. The law cannot impart life. It only brings death. Because all we do is break it. While using the holy name of vain, one time, just one time, or cursing, just one occasion is justification of the death penalty. That's how holy God is. Eternal separation from God in hell because we have transgressed the law. Now face it, I doubt any of us here would try to argue that we've only broken one of the commandments one time even. But even if we had, only once throughout our whole life, broken once, we're still condemned under the law. We're imprisoned under the law. So consider for one moment how many times in your life you have used the name of God in vain. Jokingly. Haphazardly. Smashing a finger. To invoke harm or a curse on another. And while admitting we have done so, we should recognize how far short of the glory of God we have actually fallen. We are so, fall, so far short of the greatness of God. And notice how this penalty of death assigned in Leviticus 24, it includes the name. Said he blasphemed in the name. That's generically God's name. That's verse 11. And it includes the name of Yahweh, which we translate Lord, as I said earlier. And also in the same passage, Elohim, which we translate as God. The names that we commonly use for God and Lord. Uh, And to blaspheme, of course, includes any further revelation of the name of God, as found in Scripture later revealed uh, through the apostles, Jesus Christ. And a just penalty, a righteous penalty, would be immediate execution under the law. That's an appropriate penalty for taking God's name in vain one time. And especially before coming to faith, before we were renewed by the Holy Spirit in Christ, how many times over a lifetime does the typical person take the name of the Lord their God in vain? We're all from different backgrounds here, but for unbelievers that live into adulthood, 30,000 times? 50,000 times? I I don't know. I I have no idea how many times. Using expletives that begin with initials GD or JC. Or this one even kind of gets me, though I'm not on Facebook anymore. I think it's still probably pretty common. OMG. Hmm. Before God saved me, I, I probably I couldn't quantify the number of times. I worked in an airplane hangar with 400 other men for years. Some of you have worked construction 
Some of you have been in an office. Uh, The number of times I cannot quantify that God has been gracious to me. Loving to me. Forgiving toward me. And patient with me. His, His vessel of mercy, he saw me. As he saw you, if you know Christ. Still waiting to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit in God's perfect timing. Offending him over and over and over again. And he's patient and loving with us. The author of Lamentations, likely Jeremiah the prophet, but the writer, the author, being God, of course, the writer being Jeremiah, if that is him, wrote, The Lord's loving kindnesses, the Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail, they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That a great hymn or what? Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed, God's hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. With the way, uh, really, that God's name is maltreated in our culture. You just watch television or whatever, you'll see that. If he were not patient, if he weren't long-suffering and loving, who'd, sur- who'd survive past five years old? Few. And if anyone did surpass five, most assuredly the fifth commandment would get him sooner or later. That'd kick in because thereafter Jesus recalls Scripture, recalling the Old Testament law, which said, honor your father and your mother. Nathan Buchanan is going to bring that one in a couple weeks, talk about that commandment. Jesus said, honor your father and mother, for he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. Again, it's law-breaking. That's the penalty, death. Find that in Matthew 15, verse 4. Or you could use adultery or stealing or covetousness or any combination of of above. The law can't impart life. It can't. It only brings death. You know, it's, it's one reason that we need to be equipped to respond to our unbelieving culture. A large number of whom think that you become a Christian. Really, a large number of whom think you become a Christian by keeping the Ten Commandments. And years past, it was very common for uh, these timeless Ten Commandments to be viewed as kind of a stepladder to heaven. And as you got older and wiser, you know, you kept them closer and closer until you finally worked your way all the way up to heaven. I'm glad we're wiser now. That, that is a works-based theology. It's more common now in legalistic circles. Assemblies who tragically regress or fall back to law-keeping. They play gymnastics with Scripture so as to reassign the Sabbath rest to Sunday. But nowhere in Scripture can you find that. That the Sabbath rest is reassigned to Sunday. And then they, re- they reinforce it or enforce it very strictly. That's going back to the law, folks. We'll learn uh, next week that Sunday is not a replacement for a Sabbath day. That, that is not what the Bible teaches. 
For another example, this is becoming a very common one. I've talked to many in the last year or two. This is very, very common. For the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And legalism proposes that for divorce, it matters not whether you or your spouse were a believer when that occurred, nor how many years have passed since that happened, nor how many subsequent marriages there have been, or how many children have been born in those subsequent marriages. Some conclude that God's grace does not cover divorce. And that the only way you reconcile with God is by returning. I've seen this on YouTube. People have brought me videos. Is returning to your first spouse and reconciling to them, even if it means breaking up their marriage and your own marriage and those kids being dispersed from those marriages. For, for them, God doesn't recognize any subsequent marriages. We will talk that, about that in about three weeks. And divorce has become, for some reason, the unpardonable sin of these ten. Everything else they can't claim is perpetual adultery. They dispense no grace. No grace. But they do not recognize that the timeless ten weren't given as a mechanism for us to become righteous, but to prick our consciences of how unrighteous we truly are. Then drive us to grace and forgiveness Jesus Christ. I don't think anybody can look at the Ten Commandments and say, I've kept these. One guy tries. The rich young ruler tries. He said, yeah, I've kept all of these. Jesus said, well, go sell everything you own then and come follow me. Nope. Jesus basically is revealing that he doesn't love God with all his heart, and his neighbor as himself. As we, see, as we learned the first week in the introduction, which is a summary of what the law teaches. He really didn't. The commands render our consciences guilty. They prompt us to find a solution. I can't keep these ten. What is the solution? That is a pathway to Christ. That's what it is. It's a tutor to point us to Christ. This is the reason, by the way, that the ACLU, the Freedom from Religion Foundation, and liberal politics fight to remove them from the public square. They don't want them in the public square reminding us of how unrighteous we are, or we might actually find Christ. That's what it's really about. They claim that the Timeless Ten, or the Ten Commandments, are evil. Thou shalt not steal. Awful. Honor your father and your mother. How offensive. Do not bear false witness or testimony. Man, that is is just... That's horrible to tell me that. What harm can there be by upholding marriage and the love of God and the holiness of his name and these commands in the public square. Tell me that. Just gone nuts. Our country's just gone nuts. The, the, the law is just too much for them to bear. Uh, some people no longer see the Ten Commandments as a stepladder. There's an alternative to this. Um, the modern church growth movement 
has offered a much more appealing alternative to that, uh, that these Old Testament verses don't apply anymore. Just ignore them. Curse all you want, I guess. I don't know. They don't have any place in the public square. Apparently, introduction of this message again would expose why we're doing this series. We fail. The penalty for our failure is immediate death. That's what the penalty is. But God in his forbearance, in his loving kindness, not always, but usually tolerates us for years before we come to faith in Christ. A faith where we embrace the law, not as evil or oppressive or unreasonable, but as good and right and perfect. Oh, great is thy faithfulness. God is so good. And and why then do you suppose God called for the immediate stoning of this man in Leviticus 24? I think of one reason. Israel had to see with their own eyes the penalty of disobedience. They had to see how swift and quick uh, God's vengeance is. Uh, The wages of sin, any sin is death. Secondly, this event displays to Israel and Christians how patient God has been with the rest of us. So as to amplify, or it should at least amplify our worship, our, our adoration of his holy name as we see him for the loving God that he truly is, the forgiving, patient, and kind. I just thought of one more as I was uh, walking in this morning as far as patience. Uh, why does he want us to know how quick his vengeance is? Folks, you could walk out on the street today and get hit by a truck. It might not be a stoning, as this man experienced in in Leviticus. But God's vengeance can be that quick. You need to be prepared to see him. Um, God also did not owe this man 50,000 or 100,000 times of taking his name in vain. The man in Leviticus didn't even need to know beforehand the penalty for blaspheming to be guilty. In fact, uh, as I said earlier, a sojourner in the land didn't even have to know the penalty or the law in order to be guilty before the law. So in case you have er, uh, heard otherwise, the penalty for breaking God's law doesn't only apply to Christians in the West who have a Bible. It's not just for us. It is God's law. He is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the whole universe. This is a universal law. The ethical standard in God's law applies to everybody on the planet. You know, that ought to, by the way, motivate us to missions. As we know that that those in in Southeast Asia or in Korea or Russia or wherever that may be, how about West Palm Beach, wherever it may be, they're guilty until they see Christ, that he's revealed to them and they put their faith in him. Everyone's guilty. And Israel saw the penalty for using God's name in vain. It could be so severe and so swift, they greatly feared ever using it flippantly. That's a reason that uh, it became, by the way, the the fear of God defending his name, his vengeance. uh, It became a basis, for better or for worse, of swearing uh, an oath. Swearing an oath in God's name. It became employed as a benchmark for taking vows and oaths in Israel. And, and that would bring us really to the last application I want to make today. We could go on and on. Daryl and I were talking about these ten. 
And uh, we could really do a three-week series on every single one of them if we wanted to hit it all. But we really could. There's so much that can be involved in taking God's name in vain. Um, we could go on about false prophecies. People come to you and say, well, God told me to tell you this. Things like that. I mean, there are all different directions we could go. What I really wanted to do today is just focus on the holiness of God's name and how he defends it. So we'll be more cognitive in our actions as believers. But whether or not Christians should take oaths, that's hotly debated. That's hotly debated among Christian circles. Due to James 5 verse 12, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. So some believe that Christians should never take oaths. Jesus gives a similar exhortation in Matthew 5.37, But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool for his feet, or by Jerusalem, nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. And because of the gravity of taking God's name in vain, Jews employed a custom, they had a system of swearing by everything else. You've probably heard people say, I swear by my mama's grave. You know, they came up with every other way uh, to swear by something. And it seems that these vows were employed as pledges to do something in the future with, various, with varying levels of seriousness attached. You follow me? Um, that appears to be what James and Jesus are addressing. Because we don't know the future. How do you make a vow for something six months out when you have no idea about the future? Rather, Jesus says, just let your yes be yes or your no be no. Everything beyond this is evil. So don't play games with people. Either give them a yes or, or give them a no. Say that you will do it or... or don't play games saying that maybe I will, depending upon how serious your oath is. Um, by the way, saying yes to a request of someone, that's still taking an oath. Yes, I will do that. You're still pledging, you're still vowing to do it, that you're going to follow through. Vows to God were sanctioned in the, in the law and fairly common in Scripture. The Apostle Paul took a Nazarite vow to God in, in Acts chapter 18. And what it seems, at least appears, that the New Testament prohibits false vows and discourages flippant oaths, for we don't know the future circumstances and events. I can't vow to Gerald what I might do for him next week. I don't even know what will happen in my life next week. And to invoke the name of God in that something in the future would be very foolish of me. Other things are, it could be very trifling. Meaning you're vowing for things that really don't need God's name invoked. You know, why would you vow by the name of God for something so superficial that you should just be following through with it on your yes? To be, to be very... Uh, just for the sake of illustration, to be very um, extreme on it, to vow in, in the divine name that I will you know, paint your house next week. How flippant. How dismissive that is of the holy name of God to use that even in something that is so, so unimportant in the eternal uh, 
things. It's a yes or it's a no. Um, this is why, by the way, that we don't want to get trifling, but this is one of the reasons that we don't ask people to swear an oath with a membership covenant. We have a covenant. We ask you to sign that you agree to the covenant because they're all basic principles found in Scripture. You really can't argue. As you look through uh, our membership covenant, you'll look there and there's references to Scripture. All we're asking you to do is obey Scripture and when you sign that you are uh, acknowledging that you know what's expected of you and that you will be a good member. But we don't ask people to vow uh, in God's holy name that they'll remain members here for the next 20 years. We have no idea what will happen in the next 20 years. People come, people go. Um, um, but while you're here, we ask that you obey um, clear principles of Scripture. Again, um, some believe there remains no place for any oaths or vows, and I'm going to close on this point. And I'm going to give you my personal take, all right? You may disagree. Scripture seems or at least appears to reinforce the seriousness of vows made before God, that seriousness that had been lost. You may disagree. We don't have a section in our, in our constitution and bylaws that explains everything about vows and oaths. It's not dedicated to that. So you're free to disagree. But in fact, the seriousness of these warnings in Scripture are the reason that the framers of our constitution, not our church constitution, but our United States constitution, the seriousness of the warnings of taking God's name in vain are one of the reasons the framers of our Constitution included an oath of office to be sworn in the name of God. It's a reason our court system requires swearing in of witnesses traditionally on a, with a hand on a Bible with these words, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. I personally don't have a problem with that. I don't. But God will ultimately hold you accountable to how you use his name. And he might expose you through another witness. We vow to tell the truth. Oaths are very, very serious. That's what I want you to walk away with today. Using the name of God, making oaths are very serious. If you take the view that Christians may not vow, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. But if you take that view, you also imply that Christians can't serve in high offices of the Senate, the House of Representatives, or the Supreme Court. All of which have oaths that end with the word, um, words, so help me God. The President's doesn't for some reason. Who'd have thunk that? I don't know. I, I looked it over and for some reason his oaths, oath doesn't. Um, don't know why that occurred. But generally they do swear with their hand on a Bible. Not every president has, but most in the last hundred years have. Same thing. Same thing. Still very, very solemn. Um, I think it's better than using a book on Scientology. Or a cookbook. Or something trifling like that. So, so I'm for it. Personally, I'm for it. Uh, I also don't have an aversion to swearing with a hand on the Bible to tell a court of law the truth. Um, I will fulfill that oath to God and to man. I'm within control of it. It's within the immediate future. I will do it. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, personally, I question the politician who won't. That's me. But, but I will make an oath 
in the divine name. I won't do it for, for things that are trifling. Vows or oaths before God, if your conscience permits you to take them, are for, far more serious than people have been made aware. This is incredibly important for our youth to understand and for us to understand. Knowing all this, can you think of one other vow, a solemn vow, that should be considered much, much more serious in our culture? Yeah, right off the top. I, John, take you, Rita, to be my lawfully wedded wife, my partner in life and my one true love. On this special day, I give to you in the presence of God my promise to stay by your side as your husband in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow, as well as through the good times and the bad, and to cherish you for as long as we both shall live. So I I believe there is still a place remaining in the New Testament for vows and oaths. All right? I think it's important to invoke the name of God standing in front of man for our wives, uh, our, our people to be married, to make a vow together with personal and public commitments. I'm for it. You, but you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Is this important for our kids? You are going to go up and get married. Folks, this is important. Um, we can't take God's name lightly. D- does that suggest that cursing or even breaking an oath is the unpardonable sin? No, folks. God's grace is even greater than our blaspheming. Much greater uh, than our blaspheming, except in one scenario. I'm just going to make quick reference because we just covered blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in Luke 12. There in that verse, uh, verse 10, Jesus says, Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, referring to Jesus, it will be forgiven him, but he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. You can listen to that whole message on our website from January 13th. It's titled, Unpacking the Unpardonable Sin. And to curse, to make light of, to speak a word against, to blaspheme, the holy name of Jesus is forgivable. Even 50,000 times. Anybody here say amen? Praise Jesus that he is forgiving. The Apostle Paul Identified himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1 as a blasphemer. That suggests he mocked, he derided, he even acted violently in attempts to thwart the expanse of Christ's church. He spoke against Christ. And Paul described himself as a chief of sinners. Peter spoke against Christ as he saw guards beating him. And as Peter was being associated with Christ as a follower follower of him, Scripture says he began to curse and swear, I don't know that man. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? That's Matthew 26, verse 74. And Luke 22, verse 61 says, after Peter's third denial in this way, the Lord Jesus turned and looked at Peter. This, we are told, happened as men were holding Jesus down, mocking him and beating him as they were speaking many things against him, blaspheming his name. Speaking against the holy name of Christ or denying him, they are as grave as sin can get. It's It's deserving of death. His name is above every other name. 
yet his mercy is so great. His, his patience is so perfect. His love is so kind that you could even deny Jesus looking him right in the face and he will call you to be one of his own. Is that mercy? That's God's greatness. There's no greater expression of love than the sinless Son of God bearing the stripes of iniquity on his own back to save the souls of those who have repeatedly cursed him and denied him as Savior and Lord. Folks, this is what the love of God looks like right here as we close. Peter 2 verse 23 says, While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow. Those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Would you finally stop denying him? Please. It's a matter of choosing eternal life over death. Scripture says you must repent, turning from your sins, believing on him, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. Let's pray.